Comey was spying on Trump. Well, the reason he was writing the memos was to create a record so that he could destroy No them. American knowingly colluded with the Russians to interfere in our election campaigns. Oh wait, unless you mean Hillary Clinton. Pardons, prosecutions, and transparency. You're listening to Tom Fitton's weekly update here on JW TalkNet. Hey everyone, Judicial Watch President Tom Fitton here with Judicial Watch's weekly update here on social media, the home edition, the coronavirus shutdown edition. Uh, we've uh, improved, I think, the, uh, the system here at the house to get a better quality weekly update for you. So hopefully we won't have any of the, the max headroom type uh, uh, sound and, and visual issues we had last week. Uh, but a lot of important developments to talk about. Obviously, we've got the continued, in my view, unneeded shutdown of the country. I'll talk about that a bit. Uh, significant new lawsuit concerning dirty voting rolls in North Carolina. You won't believe the numbers our lawsuit uh, is, is uncovered and uh, we're prepared to go to court on in terms of dirty voting rolls. And big news on the Hillary Clinton deposition fight where she's opposing in a desperate appeal our efforts to, to depose her under oath, a court-ordered deposition, the State Department and the Justice Department, they've abandoned her, at least in this part of the case. So they think they need, she needs to be deposed as well, or at least don't, they don't object necessarily uh, to the deposition going forward now that the lower court has ordered it. So a lot to talk about. So, uh, oh, wait, before I begin, bragging rights to whoever figures out what this picture is first. It's political, so you should be able to figure out. It's a fun picture. I bought it for my wife uh, many, many years ago as a present. Uh, so um, a lot to talk about. First up, though, is our new lawsuit. You know, the government is largely shut down. If you want anything done out of the federal government, unless they're doing something related to coronavirus, they're not doing anything at all. Uh, in fact, they've shut down their FOIA office in the FBI, which means we will get no documents from the FBI for the foreseeable future. We were also told last week, as I alerted you, that the State Department has also shut down its offices. So uh, at least its FOIA offices. And what's the excuse? Well, only these FOIA records can only be uh, reviewed in, um, in uh, secret, in secret enclaves, in secret facilities, secure facilities. So no one can go into work and review them, which doesn't make any sense to me uh, because being transparent is an essential government function, especially during this time period. Uh, so Joe Biden, who is now the presumptive nominee for the Supreme Court, excuse me, for the Democratic uh, uh, presidential uh, ticket, is uh, being protected by the State Department's failure to process any FOIA requests, even close, including those under litigation by Judicial Watch about his uh, alleged corruption, uh, at least as it relates to Ukraine and very importantly, China, because remember uh, the Chinese government gave his son um, significant backing uh, during the Obama administration, completely outrageous conflicts of interest, uh, in addition to the whole Ukraine mess, which we're, we have uh, a number of lawsuits on. So all of that's been shut down. So Joe Biden is protected by the federal government's refusal to 
abide by the rule of law during the coronavirus uh, crisis. And so, um, of course, in my view, it's not a crisis, but we'll get to that later. So I was beginning to say that I was making the point initially that even though uh, everyone wants you to think nothing can be done to enforce the rule of law during this coronavirus, Judicial Watch is proving that wrong. Uh, we continue to do the heavy lifting during the coronavirus. Our legal team worked hard to uh, uh, pursue and file uh, a new piece of litigation to make sure that your elections will be cleaner over the short, medium, and long term. Uh, we filed a new lawsuit against the state of North Carolina and certain counties in North Carolina over their failure to take reasonable steps to clean up their voting rolls. How do we know they haven't taken reasonable steps to clean up their voting rolls? Well, they've got a million inactive voters on the rolls. And typically speaking, an inactive voter is someone who hasn't voted for several presidential or general federal elections. And federal law requires that you remove them after a period of time. You send them a notice. If they don't respond or otherwise vote, over the course of five years, you got to respond. you got to remove them. So there's plenty of time uh, to... Uh, uh, if you're a voter who is registered but who hasn't been active, to get back to the state and let them know you still want to be registered. And of course, even if you are removed, you can re-register to show up at the polls and say, I want to vote. Uh, that's the way it typically works. So no one's going to be denied their right to vote. But what will happen is that dirty names, more or less, would be removed if they were following the law. And what is the law of the National Voter Registration Act, which requires states to take these reasonable steps to clean up the rolls? And uh, it was, uh, it's popularly known as the Motor Voter Bill because the left pushed it out uh, to require everyone to register or be given the opportunity to register at DMVs, at, at uh, any place where public benefits are dispensed. And so th there was a concern that when you do that, you'll get double registrations, people improperly registering a vote and such. So the deal was that they would uh, have a requirement that states take reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. Well, guess which part of the law was enforced and which part of the law wasn't enforced? Well, the left went to court to force registration, uh, to force the states and localities to register votes, voters, but no one wanted to enforce the part of the law requiring the states to clean up the list. Look, if you're eligible to vote, you have every right under the sun to register to vote and vote. And you should exercise that right if you so choose to do so. Again, if you so choose to do so. Uh, but if you move away or you die or you reside in more than one state uh, and uh, or you're otherwise becoming eligible to vote for other reasons, your name shouldn't be on the list, don't you think? And the state should take reasonable steps to take your name off the list. So if they send you a card and you don't respond, and then you don't respond, and then you don't vote in the next general election, and then you don't vote in the next general election against after that, that's as long as five plus years, the states are supposed to take your names off the rolls. The Justice Department refused to enforce that part of the law, more or less, and thankfully there was a private right of action in the law, meaning that a group like Judicial Watch could come in and sue states to enforce the law. And we were the first private entity to file these lawsuits. We filed them beginning around 2012 against Indiana and Ohio. Indiana changed their law, so we were happy. So we ended the lawsuit. Ohio settled with us, so we were happy. We ended the lawsuit, and Ohio began the process of cleaning up the rolls. 
uh, but um, the left was outraged at that, and they challenged uh, the consequences of the settlement. It was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States in 2018. So the writing was on the wall that other states needed to enforce the rule of law here. And in California, where we had sued, both California and Los Angeles County, they settled with us. And Los Angeles County, as a result of our settlement, is uh, removing up to 1.6 million names from their voter rolls. You heard that right, 1.6 million names. Now that process, as I described, will take potentially years, but it because the process begins, it means that people, in theory, get removed almost immediately uh, once the state finds out they're no longer eligible. That's, certainly, that's the way it's supposed to work. And certainly, if they're dead, they shouldn't be on the rolls at all, and that should be a no-brainer in terms of removal. So uh, that's where we stood. And, of course, we had a case in Kentucky as well, which is going to result in the removal of at least 250,000 names from the rolls. And uh, that was a resort, result of a consent decree that the state of Kentucky entered into. And so uh, we had found nationally, the first time we did a national analysis of this, there were three and a half million extra names on the rolls. And so we pursued and pushed a bunch of states on that issue. And now, according to our 2019 analysis, there are two and a half million names on the rolls who arguably shouldn't be there. And uh, in this North Carolina lawsuit, we found there are a million extra names on the rolls in North Carolina. You heard that right, one million in North Carolina. So even though Judicial Watch's lawsuits has cut the extra names by a significant margin, and, and um, there's still too many names on the rolls. And when I say two and a half million names on the rolls nationally, uh, that's that's some that even that is somewhat limited because uh, our 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 experts, you know, didn't look at every county necessarily and had a very high standard by which they um, under which they would uh, 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 add a name as being quote inactive or extra onto our list. So arguably, it's millions more that uh, you have to be sensitive about in terms of making sure your rolls are clean if you're a state or local election official. So in North Carolina, it's kind of a disaster. Uh, about 17% of North... I've got my other thing here. I'm going to bring it a little closer so I can see it better. About 17% of North Carolina's registrations were inactive, which was the fifth worst highest of the 40 states for which data was available. By way of comparison, the median state inactive rate was 9.6%. So that means you have almost 20% of the rolls North Carolina are bad. In 19 North Carolina counties, 20% or more of the registrations were inactive. And in three counties, 25% of the registrations were inactive. As of March 2020, North Carolina's own data, as I said, showed nearly 1 million inactive registrations. So I think that exact number was 960,000. A large proportion of these registrations have shown no voting activity for more than five years. So that's before the November 2014 election. So these stats are terrible. Uh, North Carolina, I think, is the, um, according to the 2019 analysis we did, uh, they've got 20 states that are close to or above the 100% of their age-eligible citizenry. What does that mean? It means that typically 
uh, when you look at uh, eligibility within a county or a state, you see who's eligible to vote. Citizen voting age population. And uh, typically 75, 80% out on a good day is the average registration rate. You know, some counties, you know, depending on the size or population, uh, you could have counties that go a little bit higher than that. Uh, but when you get to 95, frankly, 90 plus, but certainly when you have, as we found in too many places, counties where you have more people on the rolls than are living there and eligible to vote, don't you think that's a pretty good indication that they aren't taking reasonable steps to clean up the rolls. And one aspect of this lawsuit, and this is something that you can do within your own jurisdictions, is that the federal law allows you to ask questions about uh, your community's voting list maintenance activities. What are they doing? Are they sending out these notices when people don't show up to vote? Are they removing inactive voters? And, um, and they're supposed to respond to you under law, and you can sue if they don't respond. Now, hopefully you don't have to sue, but you can ask. You can go look up the National Voter Registration Act, Section 8. You can ask the questions yourself. So I encourage that individual activism as well. So uh, North Carolina was one of five states we had warned for having dirty election rolls uh, in this most recent notice uh, set that we had sent out. Uh, based on this most recent study in 2019. The other states are California, still major issues in California, Pennsylvania, Virginia, and Colorado. Now, I think Colorado, for instance, has vote by mail. Uh, how on earth do they have vote by mail with such dirty voting lists is beyond me, which raises a next issue. So I told you at least two and a half million dirty names on the rolls. Well, the left is what, what is the left doing? They're using the pretext. Again, it's the pretext because they've always wanted to do this. They're using the pretext of the coronavirus crisis to uh, push for a radical overhaul of our election system in a way that would undermine election integrity in ways that I think would basically upend and blow up the November uh, 2020 presidential elections. They're saying that every state has to have vote by mail and ballot harvesting. Now, when you have vote by mail, uh, it means, and they're under their rubric, is that everyone on the voting list, and maybe people not even on the voting list, the registration list, gets a voting, gets a ballot and gets to send it back in. Well, besides the kind of the practical, the practicalities of changing a system like that, or changing or requiring states to change the voting system like that, uh, I just told you the voting lists are a mess across the country. So what they're doing is they're sending your ballots to people who ought not to be on the list at all. They either are dead or moved away. That's an opportunity for voting fraud. And on top of that, they would have the ballot harvesters go through, bang on doors, knock on doors, and collect ballots, which obviously also is an opportunity for not only voter fraud, but voter intimidation. Now, what they and, and it would also because they've got such a, a, a crazed hatred of voter ID, uh, this vote by mail system that Pelosi and uh, Hillary Clinton are promoting, the left is just fanatic on this. Uh, when you look to see who is pushing this, 
it's the whole the whole spectrum of the left and far left and their political leadership and those of us defending it on the right on the conservative side i don't even kind of consider it a right left issue because if you're a leftist democrat trying to take on an incumbent in a in a, a corrupt jurisdiction a voter fraud can keep you from getting traction as well that's for sure so uh but those of us standing for the rule of law we're just few and far between and of course i we're happy to do the, the all the heavy lifting here there's another group out there run by our uh our friend christian adams that does some some litigation like this as well uh, but other than that nothing justice department is largely largely a wall on this they've done a little bit of work they intervened in our kentucky case for instance but I'm not aware of anything significant. So when President Trump highlights Judicial Watch's work, as he did this week at a press conference about, uh, about voter fraud and tying it to voter fraud, he's right to raise this issue. Vote by mail would be a disaster uh, because, as I said, they wouldn't, when they want to overturn the voter ID laws in 35 states, besides the constitutional issues, the federal government, you know, time, place, manner of elections is set by the state. So states have got to figure out what they want to do. Let's say the contagion is the worst of the worst to come November. What do you do? Well, you had a Wisconsin a governor, a left-wing governor, the day before the election tried to cancel in-person elections. Thankfully, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin pushed that back. And then the left also went in and tried to change the deadline by which, under which you had to send in your absentee ballot. They would let you send in the ballot after Election Day. Talk about a way to gain the system and change the outcome of an election. But that's what the left is trying to do here. And that's what they plan to do for November. So it doesn't even matter if the coronavirus is a serious issue come November or not. They're going to use it as an excuse. You see the rhetoric. You shouldn't have to you know, balance your health versus your right to vote. Well, you know, you balance your health when you go out to get groceries. If it's important, you go out and you try to vote in person. The safest and most secure way to vote is in person, at a polling place. And once you start having people vote at home, it's a, it, it, it's, it will blow up the whole process. Voter integrity can't survive national vote-by-mail the way the left plans it. Now, if you're concerned about voting in person, you have the right in most states to obtain an absentee ballot without no questions asked. Other states, you have to have a reason. And in many states, you've got to send your ID in with that uh, absentee ballot. So if states really are serious or concerned about this, they have to encourage in-person voting in a sensible way that protects the public health. And I'll talk about later about whether this whole social distancing is actually having a real impact on the coronavirus, or is it just make it up as you go along science, but let's pretend it does. You know, people wait online to go into the grocery store. People wait online to go into the voting place. That's not the end of the world. What would be the end of our republic and what would be the end of our country is this uh, uh, vote by mail that would overturn voter ID laws in 35 states. Because as I said, absentee ballots are generally available, and if you don't want to vote in person, you know what you need to do. So uh, Pelosi is going to keep on pushing this in every bill 
because they were pushing it before the coronavirus. I mean, it was their number one priority. If you go look up H.R. 1, H.R. 1. So that means that was the first bill by the new uh, left-wing majority in the House. The first bill. And uh, so the coronavirus is just an excuse or a pretext, as I like to say, for this. So uh, all of those names, those 2.5 million names, in theory, would get ballots. And as I said, that just scratches the surface of the number of invalid names on our election rolls. And we, we just can't, we can't let it happen. Uh, and that the president is correct to be vociferous in opposition to this. And frankly, any American, conservative, Republican, Democrat, left, independent, should oppose vote by mail the way the Democrats are proposing it, the left is proposing it, if they are concerned about their right to vote being stolen. You know what? We're blowing up the economy with this coronavirus shutdown. Our liberty, liberties are being suppressed with this coronavirus shutdown. And now the left, in addition, is trying to use this coronavirus shutdown to end our democracy in the sense that it would undermine and blow up uh, any concept of free and fair elections November 20th. So this is a big deal. Uh, our North Carolina lawsuit is just one of many that come. I told you we warned other states. So those other states may face litigation from us. So I encourage you, if you're not already, to support our work. Uh, because there's, as I say, there's no one else doing this sort of uh, election um, uh, education and litigation the way Judicial Watch is. Uh, and I uh, am proud of our team. And I encourage you to go and look at the lawsuit. Bob Popper is a former Justice Department civil rights attorney, civil rights Justice Department attorney. Uh, we're assisted by, uh, on the outside, by another senior Justice Department, former Justice Department civil rights attorney. It's, it, you know, because it's no surprise because you know that Judicial Watch does the work the Justice Department is supposed to do. So as the Justice Department dithers, Judicial Watch steps up and has filed another key lawsuit that could result and as many as a million names being removed from North Carolina's voting rolls. And I'm hoping the lawsuit is ends quickly. I'm hoping that North Carolina says, you know what, Judicial Watch, we screwed up. We know there are these inactive names. We know they've, they're largely gone or shouldn't be on the list. And we're going to take and begin the process to clean up the names. That's all they, I shouldn't say that's all they need to do, but that would go a long way uh, to uh, correcting the issues that we've highlighted here. They've refused to give us the documents about what they're doing to maintain the list, which is speaks volumes. In our experience, it means they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So uh, another big lie you hear is that, well, they're inactive voters. It means, don't worry, they're not, they, they don't count. Well, they do count. And I, I get upset when people say they don't count. I tell you what, if you're still an inactive voter on a list, and you're, quote, inactive, you can go vote. And to suggest you can't go vote, that suppresses the vote. Just because you haven't voted in six years in North Carolina and you still live there, check in with your local election official. Let them know you're still there. But you certainly also have the right to vote. You show up in November and you can vote. So when the politicians tell you to defend their lack of due diligence and basic fiduciary duties to you, 
that inactive voters are different, they're not different. Because if they're still residents and eligible to vote, they can vote. That's why they have to do the process to figure out if they're still there or not. So, you know, Judicial Watch, again, uh, we appreciate the president highlighting. He was talking about, I think, our California victory the other day. And he sees uh, these dirty voting names, these dirty voters uh, as voter fraud, evidence of voter fraud. And I tell you, when you look at a million and a half names or three and a half million or two and a half million, whatever the number is, that's a pool from which uh, bad guys can um, engage and uh, draw from to engage in voter fraud. It makes sense. So uh, the lawsuit was filed just this week. So it will take a while to litigate. Uh, it, and I say, you know, it, it, everything's slow, but uh, this process is getting somewhere. Because this litigation, we began this project, I think, in 2012. And since then, we've set new standards in law and have uh, removed through litigation and threats of litigation uh, where we're set to remove millions of people from the rolls who shouldn't be there under law. No one's being deprived of their right to vote. In fact, we're protecting your right to vote because we're taking it, making it harder for bad guys to steal votes using zombie voters on these rolls. So uh, I appreciate uh, your support of our work that allows us to file this new lawsuit against North Carolina. But you can see, as once again, Judicial Watch is on the cutting edge. You know, the left is using the coronavirus to advance a radical agenda to blow up our elections. And what's Judicial Watch doing? The exact opposite. We're just doing our basic work, not using anything as an excuse. But, you know, this is the result of a very detail-oriented, serious legal and investigative process uh, to protect your right to vote, to protect your civil rights. Because if you don't have the right to vote, what other what, what else is there? Might as well just check out because uh, that means you don't have the right to self-government and it means that uh, no one, a politician can do what they want without fear of being um, held accountable through the ballot box. So this is pretty darn serious, this issue. Uh, uh, not only obviously cleaning up the voter rolls, uh, but protecting voter ID, standing against and educating people about uh, this mail-in voter push by Nancy Pelosi that's unconstitutional and is designed to overturn the voter rolls, uh, the voter ID rules in 35 states and basically blow up our elections in November. So this is pretty darn serious stuff, guys. And uh, if you're uh, not paying attention, I encourage you to. If you're not supporting our work, I encourage you to uh, educate yourself about the issues I'm talking about, of course. Also support our work directly at judicialwatch.org. So another major issue is the Hillary Clinton deposition issue, and I've been talking to you about that as well. This was a major case by uh, Judicial Watch. This is the case, large, large measure, that uncovered the Clinton email scandal. We had asked about Benghazi records and I think it was 2014. Why did we ask? Uh, because Benghazi was a major scandal. You know what, guys? It still is a major scandal. Don't you agree? Four Americans died and uh, Obama and Clinton lied about it. And they lied about it to make sure that Barack Obama would be reelected. A, they were... Uh, Libya was destroyed by the Obama administration. 
it became a way station for jihadists. It was the vehicle uh, or, or, or the port of entry for many jihadists in the, in the, uh, for, to fight with ISIS in that Syria war. We had documents showing the weapons actually moving out of Benghazi. The CIA or our national security establishment knew about that. We uncovered how uh, the Obama White House was behind the fake talking points that Susan Rice used to uh, try to uh, lie to the American people. That it was a spontaneous video, a spontaneous protest in response to a video that led to the Benghazi killings, when in fact it was a planned terrorist attack. And they knew it at the time. And they knew it at the time. Our documents show that. So our work led to the creation of the Benghazi Select Committee. But one thing we noticed, because is we're getting all these hot documents, groundbreaking documents that were changing history, and where were the Clinton emails? And we suspect that there was a game going on. I initially thought maybe there were no Clinton emails. But just because I suspected it, it doesn't mean we weren't going to check. So we asked more specifically, and they came back to us and said, oh, here's everything, and of course it didn't include Clinton emails. And then they finally said, after we pushed back on them, well, uh, well, we've given you everything, but, you know, oh, look, oh, we have these other documents to, find, to search. And it turns out they were the Clinton emails. They didn't tell us that and they didn't tell the court that. Needless to say, the court was pretty ticked about it. And so eventually the court, specifically Judge Royce Lamberth, granted us discovery. And the outlines of that discovery were uh, issued, I think, in 2000, late 2018, and the discovery took place over the last year or so. And we received um, boatloads of information that Hillary Clinton was warned and should have been known about the use of her emails being a national security and other issues, that the State Department knew about her email usage and was trying to cover her up, that, Hill, that the Obama White House was involved in covering it up, the Obama White House knew, the FBI and State Department were telling us in the courts they'd given us everything they could find on Hillary Clinton's emails. They told the courts that on multiple occasions. And lo and behold, they found more Clinton emails just recently. And uh, so that and other testimony show uh, was enough to get the court pretty upset with the skullduggery by the Justice Department and the State Department, which continued to oppose discovery. And I'm talking about the Obama Justice Department, folks. I'm not talking about the Obama State Department. I'm talking about this State Department and this Justice Department. And they opposed our efforts to get discovery, get witnesses, get some of these questions answered. And the judge, uh, you know, was just fed up with their pretending there were no issues still to be discussed here or uncovered because the judge wants to know that Hillary Clinton used this system to avoid FOIA. Were there other records to be found? And um, what was the other? Oh, and whether they were <laughs> whether they were trying to hoodwink the court. So, long story short, the court issued a dramatic ruling that Hillary Clinton be deposed by judicial watch directly, and that he found her prior statements to be under oath. Word, which were in writing, to be unhelpful. So that testimony was supposed to take place by May, I think, 15th or 16th. 
Now, the coronavirus may have caused some delay in that, in theory, in the end, but that wasn't what was going on now because Hillary Clinton filed what is a uh, really desperate legal motion. It's called a writ of mandamus, essentially suing the court, going to the appellate court and telling the appellate court that you got to stop the lower court from doing this. It was an abuse. And I have an indisputable right not to testify. That's right, an indisputable right not to testify. So, uh, and uh, that uh, as a former cabinet official, nine years out now, that she can't be bothered to testify, that the court needs to step in. And so this is completely out, to, out there in terms of any legal argument. And uh, so we had to file our opposition on Friday. But, uh, but also, guess who else filed an opposition? The State Department and Justice Department. I mean, they, they didn't want this questioning to go on, but even this gambit by Hillary Clinton was too much for them. So you had the State Department, Justice Department, which had stopped, tried to stop her questioning, coming into court and saying, we don't support Hillary Clinton's mandamus motion because it's not appropriate. So, uh, and our brief is just fantastic. It was written by our, my colleagues, uh, attorney colleagues, uh, Ramona Kotka and, and Paul Orfanides, I'm sure other lawyers had a hand in it as well. Ramona uh, you uh, uh, is, has been leading this case since the beginning. And uh, we, uh, we argued that Clinton and Mills, Cheryl Mills, her chief of staff, who thinks also evidently she's too important to testify, she's a former chief of staff. It's ridiculous. We argue that Clinton and Mills must demonstrate that they have no other adequate means of relief, which they failed to show. Also, Clinton and Mills do not demonstrate that the district court's order was a judicial usurpation of power or a clear abuse of discretion, or that Clinton and Mills, again, have a clear and indisputable right to a writ. In fact, the district court reasonably concluded that Clinton's previous explanation for using a personal email server are cursory and complete and seemingly at odds with what discovery has yielded to date. Judicial Watch also argued that Clinton and Mills are trying to avoid their deposition testimony by relying on their status as, quote, former high-level government officials. They don't offer a single case from this court or any other holding that former high-level government officials should not be required to follow regular appellate channels to challenge a discovery order. Particularly in Mill's case, Judicial Watch notes they identify no case in which a court entertained a mandamus petition to stop the deposition of even a sitting cabinet member's chief of staff. Frankly, if she were in the cabinet, we'd still be able to depose her under the law. Judicial Watch also argues against Clinton's argument that the server, this is, this is classic because I don't think I've, picked, I, I've alerted you to this argument that she had made. And, and you're going to like the analogy that our lawyers came up with here. Uh, Judicial Watch also argues against Clinton's argument that she held the server under claim of right when it contained thousands of federal records. Judicial Watch states that unlike other secretaries of state like Henry Kissinger, because there was this big case with Kissinger where he had had his records, he took his records, and the law was less clear back then, and I think kicked it over to uh, the National Archives or a third party, and so there was a big brouhaha about access to the Kissinger record. 
Now, unlike other secretaries of state like Henry Kissinger, Clinton did not obtain an opinion from state's legal advisor on whether she could take the federal records prior to her departure from state. So Kissinger got legal advice before he took the records. Clinton's claim of right argument over her server would also be like bank robbery. I've always been of the opinion that Hillary Clinton stole those records and should have been held accountable in that regard under criminal law. But in the case of her deposition, we explain a bank robber who stuffed bills into a duffel bag during a robbery may, know, may own the bag, but has no claim of right to the stolen cash. Is Clinton claiming a legal right to the agency records stored on the server? If so, petitioners offer no factual or legal support for such a claim. While the server may not have been Clinton's property, the agency records on the server plainly were not. And what I like particularly about Judicial Watch's uh, litigation is because we, we kind of try to write the briefs. Uh, we, we try to uh, pursue litigation that's accessible to every American. So I encourage you to read our lawsuits. I encourage you to read our briefs. And I'm a non-lawyer. And, uh, and I can understand them. I'm not super smart. So, you know, read them. They're interesting. They're interesting if you're interested in law, and they're interested, interesting especially if you're a citizen who's interested in the ability of groups like Judicial Watch and citizens like Judicial Watch to use the law to hold government officials accountable. And so we highlight through this litigation uh, what the law requires, what the underlying scandal issues are often, because we're often pursuing scandal information. And we also highlight the efforts of the government and government officials like Hillary Clinton to avoid the consequences of their illicit decisions and um, how they sometimes misuse the law and misstate the law in order to get that done. And we do that in a way that most everybody can understand. So I encourage you, as said, to read that brief that we put out. I can't, maybe I'll read the entire brief next time. Uh, give me a comment and I'll, uh, uh, in, in the video you're watching, and we'll, we'll, we'll take a look and maybe I'll read the entire brief because I did read Judge Lambert's order, which was just fantastic, uh, a few weeks ago in its entirety. So maybe I'll read the entire brief next week. So let me know if you want us to do that. Uh, so as I said, the State Department, the Justice Department, the big news is, as said, Hillary Clinton's gone too far for their liking. Now you read this brief and I encourage you to read this, the Justice Department's brief for the State Department. So what happens is, if we see the State Department, the State Department obviously has their lawyers involved, but in, the Justice Department re represents them in the proceedings. So when it comes to cover-up, refusal to obey transparency law, all roads lead through the Justice Department. Because the agencies, their legal position isn't, quote, their own. It's the Justice Department who maintains the legal position. And in our case, as I said, they opposed discovery. They opposed our questioning Hillary Clinton. In fact, they were working with Hillary Clinton's lawyers just recently. It's pretty clear. Excuse me, I need a little, something to drink there. So, uh, so the big question I had and the big question we all had was, what was the Justice Department going to do uh, with this mandamus brief because it was so obviously out there were they going to defend the indefensible and they didn't 
And I encourage you to read the brief because you can see almost envision the Justice Department lawyers choking on their own words as they wrote them down. And you'll see an exercise in dishonesty as well. So I, I like so much here when we get something from the government that's good or bad, or in this case, somewhat good. I'm both happy that the Justice Department did the right thing, and I'm also outraged because they were still lying, in my view, about what went on with Hillary Clinton's emails. So the Justice Department, and I say, I, I guess they speak with forked tongue, is that the way? Uh, the government did not, this is what their brief says, With uh, again, this is the State Department and Justice Department, deep state, central. Uh, the government did not seek and thus does not support the extraordinary relief of mandamus due to the unique circumstances of this case. This is the rare situation in which discovery of a former cabinet official, secretary, was not authorized for the impermissible purpose of probing internal government decision-making regarding official policy but rather to focus on the impact on FOIA compliance of a former official's unusual decision to use a private email server to systematically conduct large volumes of official business. And we wrote, similarly, it's not even clear that Clinton's decision to use a personal email server and the subsequent routing of her emails out of the agency when she left office can be fairly characterized as official action it was more likely a violation of law. So, you know, the, the, the bad side of the courts of the Justice Department, State Department's brief was really interesting because it was bad in an interesting way. The Justice Department spent paragraphs defending their own misconduct because the judge in the case was accused them of, of essentially lying to him about the emails. And so they said, oh, we found out about it, and we told them there were other documents to be found. But they didn't tell us they had boxes and bankers' boxes full of Clinton emails that they had to search. And, I mean, this was the secretary of the, of the State Department, and they didn't tell us or the court any details about that until they were forced to. So that was dishonest. And the court is tired of the dishonesty. Uh, the lower court rejected their theory of the case, which is they did nothing wrong. Remember, the Justice Department's view is that the Justice Department did nothing wrong related to the cover-up the Clinton emails. The State Department's view is they did nothing wrong related to the cover-up of the emails. This is not the Obama administration's position. It's this administration's position. This is why the president is frustrated. Because he sees this going on, and, he, and you know he's on our side on these issues. It's clear. You can see it in his tweets. Attorney General Barr and Secretary Pompeo got take a, you know, I, I don't understand why they're defending this lawlessness. This is what the court said, the lower court at least, when they, when he analyzed the State Department's and Justice Department's defense of the indefensible. There's still more to learn. Even though many important questions remain unanswered, the Justice Department inexplicably, inexplicably, again, this Justice Department, still takes the position that the court should close discovery and rule on dispositive motions, which means end the case. The court is especially troubled by this to argue that the court now has enough information to determine whether a state conducted an adequate search is preposterous, especially when considering states deficient 
representations regarding the existence of additional Clinton emails. Instead, the court will now authorize a new round of discovery. So, you know, this is what she had, uh, this is what, uh, this, I'll give you some other excerpts from the ruling because the ruling is really great and I encourage you, if you go to our website, you'll see, a, a, and maybe we'll link to it here, we can link to the ruling itself, but the press release about this case, most recent, uh, has links to all the issues I'm talking about here, or all the documents I'm reading from here. Discover, again, from the court's ruling, discovery up until this point has brought to light a noteworthy amount of relevant information, thanks to Judicial Watch. But Judicial Watch requests an additional round of discovery, and understandably so, which each passing round of discovery, the court is left with more questions than answers. Hillary Clinton calls that an abuse of discretion. Obviously, that's balderdash. The court agrees with Judicial Watch. It's time to hear directly from Secretary Clinton. So the good news about the brief that was filed with the appeals court by the State Department and Justice Department, it puts the power of the Justice Department for the first time ever in this case, frankly in any Clinton email case, behind Judicial Watch and against Hillary Clinton. Because I told you the last hearing we were in, where we were trying to get her testimony, discussing that, there were six government lawyers on the other side trying to protect Hillary Clinton. This was in December of last year. Six government lawyers, in addition to four lawyers for Hillary Clinton and Cheryl Mills. So there were 10 lawyers. And who was on our side? I think it was, it was Ramona. I don't remember if there was another lawyer there. Maybe one of our lawyers was there. I, I was there. I was playing client. I'm, I'm the president of Judicial Watch. I was there representing the corporation as the client. Can you imagine that? Three years after President Trump is elected, the Justice Department is defending Hillary Clinton in federal court. Can you believe it? Imagine if you're me. Imagine if you're Ramona sitting there, knowing what the American people think about Clinton's misconduct. And I don't mean Republicans and conservatives. I mean the American people of all stripes. And we've got the government still defending her. So I'm glad the government has decided this wild abuse of the court process by Hillary Clinton is not appropriate. But just remember, at the lower court, they tried to stop her from being deposed. So uh, I, the, Mrs. Clinton's brief in response is due on May, uh, April, I think it's due today, as a matter of fact. So maybe we'll have it later tonight. So you can look at that online as well. I don't know if we'll put it online uh, or how quickly we'll get it up there. But um, uh, I expect the appellate court should move pretty quickly. Uh, we don't know for sure, but they uh, set a quick briefing process, relatively speaking. So I suspect we'll hear back soon from the uh, court. I, my guess is they'll have a hearing and uh, a telephonic hearing. Uh, which may actually provide you real-time access because these days, because the court is holding uh, hearings over the phone and conference, uh, you know, doing teleconferences, they're, they're actually live streaming them as well. So if that happens, I will be sure to alert you so you can tune in and listen. Uh, they're available. It's easy to listen to. They're on YouTube. So you can go and listen to them. So that will happen by, uh, so her brief is due today. And then we'll wait to hear from the court to see what next. So in the meantime, Judicial Watch has uh, 
discovery pending. We, the, there's been no appeal. So of two other officials who the evidence shows knew about Hillary Clinton's emails and didn't tell anyone, or at least anyone who should have known on the outside. And we also have pending the ability to subpoena Google because you may remember that one of her um, her vendors, uh, I think it was Paul Combetta, sent, according, according to the uh, report, sent all of her emails to a Google email account. So the judge says, well, you know, maybe there are emails over there. Go subpoena Google. So we're going to find out. So that's other. Uh, that's something else that we'll uh, we'll be pursuing. I'm not sure what the status of that subpoena is. So uh, what else? Oh yeah, the coronavirus. So sixteen thousand or so Americans have died from it, which is terrible. I hate to see it. I don't want to get the disease. I don't want you to get the disease. I pray and mourn with those who've lost loved ones. It's just terrible. Um, but we can't shut the country down to try to to do what? I don't know. One of the scandals, and there are scandals related to the government's response to the coronavirus, is the use and misuse of models to justify government-wide shutdowns or statewide shutdowns. The one thing that you need to remember is that the President of the United States and the federal government isn't shutting down the country. They have recommendations that may, some people may interpret as requiring shutdowns, but that's not what the recommendations say. These are state-by-state decision-making, decision decisions by governors who are panicked. Ask your governor when they're going to open the state up. Ask your governor what is the basis for keeping all of our kids at home, what is the basis for shutting down our economy and destroying our government, I mean destroying our, our national fabric. 16, 17 million people are unemployed right now. And now we're being told the earliest we can open up is May. We're going to have 30 million people unemployed by then. Our healthcare sector is being decimated. And we're all supposed to forget what we were told about this. With mitigation, it'd be 100,000 deaths. With mitigation. If we were doing what we were supposed to do now, there'd be 100,000 deaths. Now those numbers are falling apart. Now it looks like the number of deaths will be 60,000, and it'll probably be even lower than that. You know, Dr. Fauci, uh, in a study he authored, or an article he authored for the New England Journal of Medicine, I encourage you to go look it up. He said in February, I think the date of the article was, that when all is said and done, it looks like the coronavirus will just be like a severe flu season. And I say just like in the sense that the number of deaths will be just like a severe flu season. It doesn't mean we want 60,000 people to die. It doesn't mean we should be happy about it. It means that we've not, we, we, we've got to replace this in the, uh, or understand the risk for what it is and not overstate it. We've got to get back to work. And the longer this goes on, the more constitutionally suspect these shutdowns are. They're restricting access to grocery stores, telling you you've got to wear a mask and other things to get, into, get food now. In D.C., they shut down farmer's markets so you can't get food from that access. They're now restricting access to food. To be clear, 
Governors, in the case of D.C., the mayor, are restricting access to food. So if I want to go buy food for my family, I got to find a mask, I got to put it on. By the way, we were told by just a minute and a half ago, practically speaking, that masks weren't required. Now they are required. I don't object necessarily to wearing a mask. I reject to being required to wear a mask. To buy food for my family. And I can go to a grocery store, but I can't go do other errands. How long is this going to go on? If I were the president, I'd reorganize and reorient my task force. And this is what he should do. He doesn't even need to create a separate task force that, to change it to, the, to reopening the country. If you are given advice by a doctor, you've got this risk. You've got this risk factor for getting a disease. Let's say among you or your family, and the only way to do that is to quit your job and never leave the house for the next three months, and destroy your life savings. And uh, it's not guaranteed that you'll get it. It's not guaranteed even if you get it, you get you'll die. You'd say, no. It's not rational to shut down a nation in response to a pandemic. You can't end a pandemic. You can't cure a pandemic by killing an economy. You just can't. Our economy is our life. You can't have health care without an economy. You can't feed your kids without an economy then the government can't spend enough to replace an economy. The left hates the idea of, quote, an economy because they're Marxist in their orientation and they don't understand that the word economy and economic life is the lifeblood of our freedom. Property is the lifeblood of our freedom. Without it, we have nothing. Instead, the left is talking about rent forgiveness mandating all sorts of giveaways from one segment of the population to another. Look, I know there's an emergency. I, you know, in many ways, the government has deprived people of their private property rights, and they deserve compensation. I tell you, there's going to be a lot of lawsuits over this the way the longer it goes on. Judge, uh, excuse me, Attorney General Barr was on TV this week. He was suggesting almost as much So you got to call the president, you got to call Congress, and you need to try to get the country back open again. The coronavirus crisis is no longer a crisis. The crisis is the destruction of our economy and our freedoms. Yes, too many people will die from the coronavirus. Too many people will get sick from the coronavirus. We don't want anyone to get sick. There's no scientific evidence. This is an experiment, a radical experiment that has no basis in science to shut down an entire nation to control a pandemic. We see this in real time. Places where they didn't really pursue a shutdown 
are not being affected. Places where shutdowns have been pursued are being affected. In a calamitous way. So there's something else going on with the way this virus has spread that isn't necessarily controlled by this arbitrary and overbroad shutdown. You see it state by state, you see it across the country, you see it across the world. I mean, Japan, for instance, they didn't do the shutdown craziness the way we did. They don't have the problem we have. Why is that? There's no science behind this, this precipitous shutdown by the state governors. And again, it's the state governors doing it. So I encourage you, uh, because I say, you know, there's a lot at risk here. Our economy is being put at risk. The left is just must be cheering on the destruction of our rights because they see opportunities here for other emergencies. And now they're using it as a way to destroy our election systems. So we've got to end it. But just think of the healthcare industry. It's being decimated right now. In New York, it's terrible, I recognize. I mean, even if things are getting better in New York, I'm sure there are hospitals and under stress. The rest of the country, hospitals under, under, aren't under stressed. They are in the sense of economically, regular access to health care has been curtailed. I'd like the president to direct his task force to model the economic destruction of the shutdown, the health devastation of the shutdown, the, the impact on our health industry of the shutdown, When they ban elective medical treatments, that means someone isn't going to pursue medical treatment where it might otherwise be required and might otherwise save their life if it's done in a timely way. Where's the accountability for that? And of course the president's instincts are with this approach. But in the end, it's the governors are going to open up the states and the governors need to get their act together and stop panicking. I see Governor DeSantis in Florida, who was hesitant to issue these uh, a radical shutdown order, was cornered into doing one. And now he's talking about opening up schools in May, which is the right thing to be talking about. I recognize there are going to be restrictions. Dr. Fauci's right. We're going to operate very differently until we have good treatments in place and uh, maybe a vaccine. I don't think there'll ever real probably be a vaccine. I hope there is, but you know, I, th I think uh, we should pretend there won't be one or plan for one not to be if you're trying to plan it out. Oh, if one's, one's created, that's great. So there may be restrictions, common sense restrictions. The American people can figure that out on their own, thank you. And what is the data? Forget about the models which have been blown up. The data is real time. You look at hospitalizations, you look at ICU, you know, uh, util utilization. And you, if you see that rising, you see it related, you know, that's your real time. That's taking the temperature of hospital systems. You got to monitor that. So the government and public health authorities can act to take whatever re reasonable steps they can to try to figure out why coronavirus is popping up in a jurisdiction or a location. But the idea that 
you know, someone in Texas or in Kansas or in Oklahoma should be under the same type of lockdown as someone in Midtown Manhattan is absurd. Frankly, and even in New York, it's absurd. Is Buffalo the same as New York City? I haven't looked at I've been. I've had that on my list. Maybe this could be your little project, those of you watching. Go and see what happen, what's happening in Buffalo. Or in Albany. Or Binghamton. Syracuse. Should they be treated the same as New York City? Common sense has got to be... I, I don't know, is there a pill for common sense we can give governors and politicians? The only common sense is going to come from pressure from voters who are tired of having... I mean, have you seen the food lines? It's outrageous. These are people who can't afford food because they've been put out of work by a government unthinking gargantuan toddler of a government walking around demanding smashing without any thinking and I made this tweet the other day and I encourage you to follow my tweet feed because you know it's because um, I talk about these issues a lot on my uh, Twitter at, at Tom Fitton of course uh, Judicial Watch is covering it as well at Judicial Watch all of this the um I don't want to hear, I don't want to see any more public service announcements by wealthy and famous individuals uh, living in the lap of luxury telling us they got to, we should all stay home. We're all in this together. Yeah, we're all in this together in the sense we're praying that no one gets sick, praying for our healthcare workers, workers that they don't get sick, praising their heroism and treating these patients in harrowing circumstances, praying for the families of everyone who gets sick. But we're not all in this together in terms of the impact on our personal lives. Because there are millions of Americans who can't stay home because they rely on going to work to pay, their, they pay, to pay the bills and to eat. So, so we're not all in this together. Because this shutdown is affecting, talk about, where's the left on this? The clan, you know, they, They're playing the race card in terms of the impact on COVID, on medical care, and the impact on COVID for minorities. You can bet this shutdown is disproportionately affecting minorities and the working poor who have no jobs, no way to pay the bills. Sure, you know, there have been some, some forgiveness issues with utilities and, you know, people are giving them a break, everyone a break. That doesn't pay the bills, though, in the end. The money stills owed. I'd like to, I, everyone promoting a shutdown in the media, I'd like to know if they're being paid. not to work or work from home. Because it's easy to promote a shutdown if you've got no skin in the game. So uh, Judicial Watch has several Freedom of Information Act requests pending about these issues, uh, about the models, about the Chinese connection, 
about uh, you know the sorts of issues that you would be care you would care about. If you got FOIA ideas, I encourage you that, uh, to send them to us. You can go online. You can see how to communicate with us online at judicialwatch.org, or you can or you can leave your FOIA ideas in the comments. We try to review the comments from time to time here as well. So um, in the meantime, I'm hoping that you stay healthy and safe. I'm hoping this economic contagion is uh, not affecting you. Uh, and, I, and I pray that the burden, if it is affecting you, is lifted as quickly as humanly possible. I hope that we're all together in trying to end this coronavirus shutdown because that's the greatest threat to the nation there is right now. So with that being said, I'll be back here next week with more documents, maybe more lawsuits, and certainly more information on the ongoing coronavirus shutdown crisis. Thanks for joining us, and I'll see you next time here on the Judicial Watch Weekly Update. You have just listened to Tom Fitton's weekly update on JW TalkNet. Remember to subscribe and donate at judicialwatch.org slash donate.